Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Clyburn Chronicles. I have always been a lover of history. I see this platform as a way to connect history with the politics of today. This is so important because as Judge Santiano once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Each episode, my guest and I will have a conversation about the lessons of the past, the politics of the present, and how we must learn from those experiences to help shape the future. Thank you for taking time to listen, and welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. Welcome once again to Clyburn Chronicles. We have been uh, doing uh, these sessions for some time now, uh, trying to keep people abreast uh, as to what's going on in the country, uh, most especially uh, on the political front. However, we get into other areas uh, as well. Uh, we have been honored with some very special people uh, since doing uh, this podcast. And today uh, is no exception. Uh, we are pleased to have with us today, Spencer Overton, a very special person who is now uh, the uh, head uh, CEO, you might add, uh, of our uh, black think tank, the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies. It's been around since 1970. Uh, I have been a, a big fan of the Joint Center uh, for many, many years. Uh, having been around uh, at, at its founding, uh, and I am pleased that it's under the uh, caretakership uh, of someone who believes very much uh, in uh, where this center uh, can take us going forward. Uh, Spencer Overton is a uh, is a law professor, uh, and which means he spent his background uh, studying the law. Uh, he now teaches it, uh, and of course uh, he understands uh, the political process very well. Well, very well. He does research. He's written books about it, uh, and. Uh, other academic articles as well. Um, Spencer also worked on the election commissions. Uh, he has done work uh, most recently uh, on um, presidential uh, transition teams, on the Obama uh, transition team. And of course, uh, he has worked on the restoration of voting rights as well, which means uh, he's got some work ahead of him. Uh, because of the results uh, of the seven years ago now uh, Supreme Court decision uh, of, uh, uh, you know, the Shelby uh, beholder decision uh, that neutered uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Didn't get rid of the act, uh, but it threw out the formula uh, found in Section 4 uh, that uh, gives rise to the 
uh, overview uh, of Section 5. Uh, and for the first time now since 1964, we were having a presidential election without the protections of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, and all of us have been uh, celebrating the life and legacy of John R. Lewis, whose commitment to voting rights uh, led him across the Edmund Feathers Bridge in March of 1965, who was beaten to near death uh, with uh, marching with 599 others, uh, gave rise to what became known as Bloody Sunday. Uh, and it was the aftermath of Bloody Sunday that led President Lyndon Johnson uh, to declare in a joint uh, session uh, of the Congress, closing his speech by pronouncing that anthem, we shall overcome. And with that, uh, the legislation was subsequently passed creating uh, the 1965 Voting Rights Act that was signed into law on August 6, 1965. So within six months of that march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, we got that law passed. And I think, and I was with Eric Holder, the former Attorney General, uh, about a week ago, and I said, I may be wrong about this, but I consider the 1965 uh, Voting Rights Act to being uh, in probably the most consequential uh, civil rights act uh, of uh, the uh, nation's history. Mm -hmm. And I was pleasantly surprised that he agreed with me. Mm -hmm. But for all intents and purposes, it's only a shell today. And what we've got to do is regain those protections. And we're going to be relying upon the preeminent Black Think Tank, the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies to get us to where we need to be so that we can get a Congress uh, to consider uh, and uh, to pass a new Voting Rights Act. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, the need for that, what is taking place today uh, that makes it uh, just absolutely necessary for us to do that. And I'm pleased to be here with the guy who is going to be our quarterback. Uh, yeah, I'm going I'm to run the ball uh, when he hands it off. Uh, but he's going to be our quarterback, Spencer Overton. Spencer? Congressman Clyburn, thank you so much for your stellar leadership as Majority Whip in the House, as well as the select subcommittee of the uh, coronavirus. Uh, you're making a huge difference for South Carolina, as well as for Black communities nationwide. Thanks for your support of the Joint Center. Also, let me say, you mentioned the, the commissions, and I think one of the more proud moments here was the little bit of work we did, really, as a result of your leadership in terms of changing the uh, primary schedule, the presidential primary schedule, so that South Carolina had a prominent place. It really has changed the uh, trajectory of our nation in terms of leadership, in terms of having South Carolina up front just before Super Tuesday. And so, you know, just thank you so much for your leadership. Thank you.
Well, tell us a little bit about where you think we ought to be going. Well, right now we're in this moment, uh, Congressman Clyburn. I think we've got a couple big issues here. You know, one big issue is this disinformation that we've got online. You remember in 2016, there were, you know, Facebook pages like Williams and Calvin that purported to be run by black folks. They focused on police brutality, other issues. And then actually on election day, they ran an ad that was targeted at black folks. So distributed just to black folks on Facebook. And it basically said, we don't have any other choice this time, but to boycott the election. Uh, no one represents black people, don't go to vote. And you remember, after uh, the election, it turned out that that site was run by the Russians and that they had many other sites that were targeted at Black folks that discouraged folks from voting. So we've got a problem with that type of misinformation online and folks need to be on the lookout for that and really get out and vote and participate. And then we've also got some traditional barriers in this very different new COVID uh, uh, election. When we talk about uh, vote by mail and uh, some of the, the issues there that we need to talk about today, uh, wait times in terms of lines, uh, registration challenges. So, you know, I think we've got a lot to talk about today. Thank you. You know, um, H.R. 4, that's the legislation that we passed in the House, sent to the Senate uh, to fix uh, what uh, Chief Justice Roberts said was wrong uh, with the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Now, what he said was that the formula that was used in order to determine coverage was outdated and should be uh, updated. Well, uh, we thought we had done that. John Lewis, working uh, with the Republican uh, congressman from uh, Wisconsin, uh, had worked on putting all that information together. Uh, we used that uh, to reauthorize uh, the law, uh, but Robert said that was not good enough and overturned the law. And so then uh, we uh, passed this bill and it does update the law. We think sufficiently, but it's lingering in the Senate, which means uh, that uh, this Congress will come to an end uh, at the end of this year. So we'll have to resubmit it again. So when we submit this bill, and I know you're very familiar with it, looking at the experiences that we've had in the last several years, I think already uh, we're going to have to submit this bill with some other stuff in it uh, in order to address some issues that we now see that we did not focus on before. Uh, would you like to uh, tell us uh, some of the things you think we need to consider going forward? Yes sir. yes, sir. Well, when we think about the record and we think about issues like a governor saying in Texas, you can only have one drop box per county uh, here, and we're going to have the same number of drop boxes uh, for votes in a county of 
millions uh, like Harris County where Houston is as we do in a small county that's five or 6,000 people, you know, I think that that is, is good evidence, you know, that we've got some discrimination right now. And, and a, a couple notes to kind of dig into this. Uh, you know, you talk about updating the Voting Rights Act through the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. And the reason this is so important is you'll remember before the 1960s, you'd challenge a law like a, uh, a requirement that you interpret the federal constitution of the United States in order to register to vote. And you'd win that lawsuit. And then the very next day, the registrar would say, okay, it's a new rule. You gotta interpret the state constitution now in order to register. So these, this uh, evolves here in terms of discrimination, evolves in terms of voting. It doesn't stand still. Right. And, and similarly today, discrimination evolves. And so you remember that uh, the, the, the provision that was effectively disabled as a result of striking down the coverage formula was this pre-clearance provision that said anytime you want to change some procedures, anytime you want to come up with a rule that says there's only one drop box per county, <laughs> you got to get uh, pre-clearance, right, from the federal government. So the big deal right now is, are we going to have a coverage formula that supported that the court will acknowledge reflects discrimination that exists that's out there? As you've mentioned, we've got uh, uh, even a more extensive record uh, for that coverage formula as a result of this election, uh, and hopefully the court will, uh, will, will uphold this after it's passed. I think one important point I want to mention, Mr. Clyburn, is how important it is to prioritize this. If there is a new policy environment, it's incredibly critical to prioritize restoration of, of the Voting Rights Act, uh, as well as some other things like uh, statehood for uh, DC. You know, DC is 46% Black and has a larger population than both Wyoming and, and Vermont. Uh, there are some core democratic issues we've got to address that should happen early uh, if there is an opening as opposed to postponing them. Well, that is one of the things that we certainly got to take a look at. Because, uh, you know, I remember legislatively uh, dealing with the size of precincts mm -hmm. uh, when uh, we saw uh, that real big precincts um, effectively uh, discourage voting, mm -hmm. uh, which would be uh, a form of suppression. Uh, I don't know how you can get a bigger precinct uh, than one county, uh, especially the size of Harris County, which I think is bigger than one or two of our states. Right. Uh, so uh, when you look at that, uh, then you got to, to say, uh, we've got to take a hard look at some things that at Cincinnati and Lewis uh, did not take into consideration uh, when they were working to reauthorize uh, the 1965 Voting Rights Act. But there's some other things as well. Uh, we just had, uh, because of COVID-19, a judge to rule that South Carolina's re requirement of having 
someone witnessed uh, the signature of a voter, uh, you know, we don't have anybody vouching for a voter uh, when he or she goes to the polls on election day. Uh, we assume that that voter that signs up under that name, that's the voter. Right. Nobody's vouching for that person. Uh, and then when that case went to the Supreme Court, they reinstated the requirement. So I think we know where this court is going. Uh, and the question then becomes, uh, how do we address what seems to be the tilt of this court as we look at uh, how uh, to write voter protection into law? Yeah, well, you know, um, Congressman Clyburn, I know you have worked on this and, and I worked with the Boule a few years ago when President Obama nominated Merrick Garland uh, and, and had Boule members uh, go up to their senators and talk to them about that issue. And you know, Merrick Garland was a very center of the road person, right? You know, it wasn't uh, progressive at all, very uh, acceptable. And there was a rejection of him. Uh, you remember he was not, it was like February when the opening came up. And so we have got a spot where we've got, you know, three uh, straight uh, possible appointments uh, in terms of this court. And I, I just think in terms of kind of the political manipulation of this process, you know, it's difficult to say that this is all about equal justice under law uh, here. And it, it just seems like if things go through, that there's gotta be some, some response, some reaction. Uh, I'll leave it to, to you and, and other wise folks to tell us what the reaction is later. And I think that that's probably later uh, after, uh, if this, um, person is, is confirmed, it's probably premature to think right now about what the response is. But, you know, there's really been an effort at court packing uh, in the past uh, three or four years. And, you know, I think we, we, that's something that we've got to take a serious look at. Well, there's no question about that. You know, uh, in one of our recent podcasts, I had G.K. Butterfield mm -hmm. uh, on and of course, we had a very extensive discussion uh, of um, the history of, of voting rights. And of course, uh, most people are familiar uh, with all the tactics that were used in order to deny uh, people the right to vote. Mm -hmm. In fact, a few people realized that um, uh, when that march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge took place, only 2% of African-Americans in the whole state of Alabama were registered to vote. Right. Uh, and that wasn't because they didn't want to register to vote. Uh, that was because uh, they were denied it uh, and all kinds of tactics were used to deny that. Uh, and so here we are today. Um, and of course, nobody is being, we don't know of any real physical harm that's being brought uh, to people. Uh, but when you built in uh, these um, requirements, uh, like um, having somebody to witness the signature or having photo ID, uh, all these things 
that we've not put into the law. Uh, the question then becomes uh, whether or not we are going to be able uh, to get an effective law mm -hmm. uh, uh, passed uh, that um, will pass muster uh, with this new uh, Supreme Court uh, that's, that we're going to have. Because mm -hmm. uh, I'm convinced uh, that this is going to be a six to three court mm -hmm. uh, if uh, the new nominee is confirmed uh, against uh, what um, I would consider to be uh, the, the ideal. Mm -hmm. So uh, do you think it's possible to write the kind of law uh, that will um, uh, get, um, uh, you know, meet approval? Meet the, approval by this court. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I think uh, folks of goodwill who are committed to voting rights have to focus on what's inside their control, right? A uh, part of it is focusing on going ahead and passing this uh, law. Uh, and then part of it may involve figuring out uh, how to deal with uh, the process uh, in terms of the judiciary. But again, I think that's the question is premature now. I think that's an issue to be dealt with uh, later uh, if things uh, play out in a particular way. I wanna come back to something that you said here in terms of violence. And certainly there was violence uh, in terms of uh, Bloody uh, Sunday and the Edmund Pettus Bridge in various other contexts, right? But there were also these nonviolent regulations that prevented people from participating, right? They were just, hey, uh, you know, you've got to pay this uh, poll tax or uh, the registration office isn't open. And, and it was not just about segregation, we're evil, we're, we're, we're against Black people. It, it was an effort for certain people to maintain power and per maintain a particular power structure. And, and when people use these regulatory devices today to maintain uh, political power, you know, trying to distance it from back then by suggesting, oh, well, you know, back then folks were, it was, it was violence in terms of, uh, you know, bad things going on and now things are different and it's just political, no. You know, it, it is really targeting uh, communities of color, uh, other folks, and, and trying to maintain power by disenfranchising them. This has been going on since redemption in the aftermath of uh, reconstruction uh, here. Uh, and it has evolved over time, but it has been a political strategy that certain folks have used to maintain power by excluding black communities and some, some other folks. And so, you know, I think we just really have to be honest about it. It shouldn't be a partisan issue. It should be about, are you about civil rights? Are you about voting rights? Are you about including everybody or aren't you? Well, look, um, let's step back a moment. Uh, all of this is uh, assuming that we'll have a brand new court after January. <clears throat> what I do know is that we're going to have an election between now and then. Right. Uh, this podcast will be out 
before the public before uh, November 3rd. And although we know November 3rd is election day, we've been asking people to make October election month uh, and encouraging people uh, to vote. And of course, uh, under the conditions that we find ourselves, uh, we got to add to that and do so safely. Uh, so <clears throat> I guess the question I would have a view is, uh, uh, can we uh, do things like mandate the size of precincts mm -hmm. uh, in federal law? I've never seen that done. I've seen it in state law, which gets ignored. Um, but can we uh, do things like that uh, to make voting more efficient? See, we heard the other day, I watched a gentleman the other day who said it took him 11 hours. He stayed in line 11 hours to vote. Now, uh, there's something wrong with that. Right. And so, to me, uh, I, I, I have to ask you as the law professor, uh, can you require uh, limit the size of precincts in law? Well, number one, Congress has the power. Uh, to regulate the time, place, and manner of federal elections. And so with regard, this certainly size of precincts is related to time, place, and manner as opposed to qualifications. And so Congress certainly has the power to do that. And then if it couples it with some spending, uh, so it gives some money uh, for elections, it's likely that states would likely adopt some of those processes for, for state uh, elections as well. So there are these bigger reforms, but as you've said, Congressman Clyburn, we've got something that's right here in front of us here, right? And we've got some unique challenges right now because of COVID. One challenge has been registration. You know, before the virus, uh, Black voters reported being registered through voter registration drives at over twice the rate of white voters and at public assistance agencies at almost five times the rate of white voters. Those options aren't as open uh, as much. Uh, vote by mail uh, is a significant uh, 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 way to vote now as a result of the pandemic, which is definitely important. And by the way, we can talk, you know, the, 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 the claims of fraud are completely overblown. A person's 13 times more likely to be struck by lightning at some point in life than to commit voter fraud by mail. So that's overblown. But there is a challenge and that challenge is the rejection of ballots. Maybe about 1% of vote by mail ballots are rejected because of a lack of a signature or a non-matching signature or they weren't received by the deadline. So people really taking that into account. If, if, you're, do, if you're voting by mail, you know, not trying to watch TV while you're voting, like just sitting down and focus on your ballot Make sure everything's filled out, that you sign everything appropriately and, and send it in so that it's not rejected. We've seen rejection rates of, of black folks at you know three or four times the rate of white folks. So you know, it might be a scenario where two percent of black votes are rejected and about a uh, half a percent of white folks are rejected. And that doesn't seem like very much, but when you multiply that times hundreds of thousands of votes, uh, that really can uh, determine outcomes. So paying attention to that. And then this wait times piece that you mentioned in 2016, before COVID, 
uh, black folks were uh, waited in line 60% longer than white folks. The average white wait in line was 10 minutes. The average black wait in line was 16 minutes uh, here. So we already had that problem before the pandemic. What we'd want to happen is for that not to get worse uh, during uh, the, the pandemic. So those are some things that we've got to uh, look out for uh, here in terms of the next couple of weeks. Well, uh, let me ask you something because I've never been able to, uh, never focused on the Electoral College and to uh, the, you know, there's a big move on. Mm -hmm. uh, and there, I've talked to a lot of young people uh, who really uh, see this. And if you recall, uh, former President Obama, uh, several weeks ago, alluded to the Electoral College as a relic mm -hmm. uh, that um, uh, is discriminatory right. uh, and ought to be looked at. Uh, and since we, that is a big part of voting, uh, it hurt, showed enough to determine results. Um, uh, have you done any work at all? Uh, or in a study of uh, whether or not Maine and Nebraska uh, method of doing it is a way to do it, whether or not they'd ought to be eliminated. Now, that is to say for our listeners, in Maine and Nebraska, these two states uh, award uh, electoral college votes based upon the congressional districts. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, for instance, uh, I think if you got, uh, say, who cares the state will get two votes because each state got two senators. Uh, but the rest of the votes will be allocated based on who cares the congressional district. So that would be one way. Some people will say, let's just eliminate the Electoral College altogether and just have uh, whoever wins a popular vote. You know, Hillary Clinton, looking back, would love to that have been the case <laughs> four years ago. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? You know, it's. I think it's definitely a problem in terms of the Electoral College uh, here. Um, it, it, you know, you have places like uh, Nebraska or you, Wyoming, uh, other places that have outsized influence uh, as a result. Now, I will note uh, there is an issue of unilateral disarmament, right? So, for example, if you had California alone go to a, a congressional district type of system, right, it would be uh, giving up uh, electoral uh, votes uh, here. So it seems like you'd, something you'd have to do nationwide. The biggest challenge nationwide, of course, is generally the thought is it requires a constitutional amendment. Right now, some people have said that you can do this through legislation by states entering, entering into compacts with one another. And basically, if you get enough states with enough votes, they just agree that whoever wins the popular vote, that's who gets their electoral votes. So that's a possible way to do it without a constitutional amendment. If you go the constitutional route, the biggest issue you've got is that small states that are overrepresented, like a Wyoming, uh, are going to object and are going to uh, kill it. I think another issue that's related to this is the Senate, right? The Senate, and this is one of the reasons to me why DC statehood is so important. 
the fact that in the Senate, uh, you know, there are some places in the country, you've got about, you know, 30%, 35% of the population in the country that's effectively controlling the nation. Uh, um, and, and, you know, simply because you've got small states with senators, you've got a similar problem in terms of the Electoral College. I will note though, that there are places like Ohio and Pennsylvania and Michigan and Florida where large black populations can determine outcomes. Uh, and so there's an argument that sometimes the electoral college can work in favor of black folks if you've got a significant black turnout in a state like Pennsylvania or Ohio or Florida. Well, I must admit that uh, that's the school that I've been in for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that um, uh, these states where uh, the black vote can, in fact, influence the outcome, uh, gives them some weight in the electoral college they would not have otherwise. Um, so I've camped out there for a long time. I find myself, though, looking at another side of the, this coin, and that is, uh, let's just use South Carolina for an example. Um, we played uh, a big, big role uh, in the primary. Right. However, uh, we have not seen any one of the candidates uh, in this state since the primary. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is because uh, it's generally felt uh, that the state is going to be read uh, reliably. And so Republican candidate uh, will not see the need to come back and therefore has not been back. Uh, and uh, the the Democratic candidate, uh, seeing there's no uh, need to come back because of the same reason, we got no change. Right. However, uh, if the uh, votes were awarded by congressional districts, um, it would change that way of thinking. Right. Uh, because okay. there are candidates now that know they know they can't carry, uh, say Nebraska. They go there because of that. It, it, that one electoral vote is there. Right. Same thing up in Maine. Now, now another question though would be: Does the state legislature have a lot of influence in drawing the district, in shaping not just the House, but in terms of shaping the presidential outcome? So, if we move to a congressional district piece, would that magnify the influence of a state legislature? If you didn't have a Voting Rights Act, for example, could the majority in the South Carolina legislature, for example, simply, you know, draw districts that were all of one party that would help them in both the in both the um, the, the House of Representatives and in terms of the I know it's kind of a winner take all right now, but could you see something similar in other states? You you understand my point in terms of increasing sure. the influence of the state legislature over the presidential. Well, that takes place anyway over the congressional. Uh, right. They draw the lines. Uh, well, you know, some states use commissions to do them. Right. Um, but um, in a state like South Carolina, still the legislature uh, would use this influence to determine uh, how many uh, that's the reason there are seven congressional districts in South Carolina uh, 
and right now there are only two Democrats. Right. Uh, right. And I'm the only person of color, though the state is roughly 30 percent uh, African American. So that's certainly an issue uh, that will be discussed. But I just thought that because I'm hearing a whole lot today about the Electoral College, uh, more than I've heard ever uh, before, uh, and maybe um, and since we're talking about voting, and people are looking at that as being a reason there's no need to vote if that's what they're concerned about, mm -hmm. uh, and that is the presidential. Because right. I know uh, I've had people say that to me. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, my vote is not going to matter on the presidential thing because uh, the state is going to uh, go; it's going to stay red. And so, what does it matter? And and I agree with you that that's something that we can deal with and should think about from a priority standpoint. This concept of updating the Voting Rights Act statehood for dc and you know two senators from a place that's 46 percent black right and a place that has a greater population than wyoming and vermont right uh, and then also some other reforms like prohibiting deceptive practices like federal law prohibits intimidation as you mentioned but it doesn't prohibit deceptive practices in terms of discouraging people from participating you know, online voter registration, same day registration, restoring voting rights to returning citizens, uh, preventing election officials from purging eligible voters from the voting rolls. I think all of those things are, are critical and are doable, uh, you know, uh, immediately in the right type of, of policy environment. Well, um... We're going to have a lot of discussions going forward uh, on this. It's going to be very, very important uh, uh, if uh, the, uh, the Senate uh, flips. Uh, I think the House will probably remain the way it is uh, in terms of party alignment. Um, the Senate, uh, some people think, is a 50-50 chance uh, that it will flip. Uh, some people think it's better than 50-50 chance. Uh, that a Democrat will occupy the White House. And then the question then becomes, um, what happens with D.C. statehood? Uh, what happens with um, uh, the Voting Rights Act? Uh, and of course, we'll have to take a look at what is in that Voting Rights Act. Because really, I am, though I was there, a, a big part of uh, putting together H.R. 4, um, as I reflect on what I've experienced in recent weeks, uh, I'm not too sure that we don't need to have a rewrite of HR for uh, to cover some other things that we have not talked about uh, or we did not talk about when we were putting together the last time. Though uh, Jim Simpson-Brenner and John Lewis were the uh, authors of that, Terry Sewell, uh, well, uh, we presented it uh, in her name as a lead author of that. Uh, I chaired the committee uh, that sat around uh, with uh, everybody to draw it up. Um, I thought we were uh, pretty comprehensive uh, until uh, recent weeks. I'm not too sure that uh, more work that needs to be done. You're right that probably more work needs to be done, but this is one of the great things about preclearance, right? It evolves to a certain right. degree. 
but that's why it was so important. I think one other thing I'd mention in there is this concept of online disinformation. You know, giving these companies, right now there have been a lot of proposals to take power away from companies so that they don't take down this disinformation that suppresses black votes. And so making sure that the companies, you know, make, making sure that they take down disinformation, that's number one. And then number two, some of the companies have argued that they should be able to target ads let's say housing ads or employment ads away from black communities or target voter suppression ads toward black communities without being liable for violating uh, federal civil rights laws uh, under section 230. And I think that that's something that, that needs to be uh, cleaned up. So some of this online uh, campaigning piece, but, but I think one other thing I would say here is we talk about voting with your listeners and the critical thing, none of this should discourage folks from getting out and voting. You know, folks need to get out and vote. There needs to be good information. If you see disinformation, you need to call 866-R-VOTE, which is the Election Protection Coalition's number or the Lawyers Committee. Let them know what's going on, report it here, but not be dissuaded uh, from voting as you know uh, you did your job in terms of passing the HEROES Act, uh, but unfortunately, uh, other folks did not. And as a result, lo so much is different with elections this year. And there's such a, you know, so much misinformation and people don't know exactly what's going on. And so having good information is important. So don't share disinformation. Make sure you're sharing good information or go to trusted sources to get good information. And, and folks need to make sure that they're participating. That's just really key for the next couple of weeks. Absolutely. And I would hope, uh, as I said to a group uh, earlier, uh, that um, these candidates that you go to church with, you uh, walk shopping in grocery stores together, and you've known these candidates all these years, and all of a sudden, something shows up on your device <laughs> <laughs> about, about this candidate you've known all your life, uh, foolishness that you never heard before in your life, uh, and the, the name attached to it is some pseudonym that you, uh, might be just a joking name. What would make you believe that, you know? What would make you believe is something that uh, some total stranger sends to you about a candidate? Uh, and if you just don't know it, uh, you got to just avoid that stuff. Don't pay any attention to it. Because I suspect that over the next two weeks, uh, less than two weeks now, uh, we're going to have a lot of foolishness out there, uh, all designed uh, to discourage and dissuade. Uh, so uh, I want to thank you uh, for all that you've done uh, on uh, in this area. And I uh, want to warn you uh, that you're going to have a lot of work uh, going forward because there's no question. But those of us who are on Capitol Hill, uh, we may know how to get a piece of legislation passed. But we rely on people like you uh to help us uh with the substance of it 
uh, help us uh, do what's necessary to uh, have legislation that's going to be effective. And so we're going to be relying on you going forward. Uh, and the uh, this mismanaged misinformation stuff uh, is something that I feel very strongly about uh, because I uh, I get a little bit upset when people ask me these questions about stuff that I just think they ought not be asking me questions about uh, or not even be entertaining. But people tend to believe what they see uh, in writing. And so we're going to be relying on you. Uh, any closing comments you'd like to make? Yes, sir. Uh, thank you for your leadership. And I just want to say there may be an environment where voting rights can be protected in a few months. And there will be voices that say to you, just slow down. We don't wanna look like a power grab here and we don't wanna seem political, et cetera. And you know, I, 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 I want you to just do what's already in your heart, which is to stay committed to voting rights and push back those voices who say, we can wait on voting rights. We can do that later. We can procrastinate on that. We're gonna deal with these other things or we're concerned about what Sean Hannity will say uh, if we uh, you know, have voting rights, et cetera. You know, just, just really being committed and ensuring that those principles are put up front uh, I just think is incredibly important in terms of our democracy and, and having an inclusive democracy. And I know you're already there, but I just want to say that, you know, you've got, uh, 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 you know, uh, millions of people who are behind you and who are supporting you as you make the case that, you know, we need to have full participation and full democracy and full voting rights right now and that needs to be a priority one. Well, thank you very much. And thank you so much for being with us today. As you uh, know that um, uh, I enjoyed a 60 year relationship uh, with John Lewis. Uh, and John was so committed uh, to this whole issue. But I don't know, uh, you know, the whole broad spectrum of civil rights may be one thing, but when it came to voting, uh, voting to John was was just a religious activity, uh, and I am very very hopeful that the new John R. Lewis uh, Voting uh, Rights Act uh, will become law, and I hope that it will contain uh, the, the elements uh, that will make it an effective piece of legislation uh, and one that will pass uh, constitutional muster. Uh, so that people can feel free uh, to cast their vote and feel certain that that vote will uh, will count. Uh, so thank you so much uh, for uh, being here with me today. And, and thank you uh, for what I know you're going to do uh, next year uh, to help us get uh, a good, viable, and valuable piece of legislation. Thanks so much, Congressman Clyburn. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clyburn Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts 
so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn.